Welcome and thank you for connecting with us at Parkwood Baptist Church. Here at Parkwood, we exist to glorify God by laboring together for the growth of all believers while going with the gospel to all peoples. You can find more information about our church at parkwoodonline.org. By visiting our website, you will be able to learn more about Parkwood and our mission. Now join us as we grow together through the teaching of God's Word. invite you to John the Baptist story in Luke chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6, though we're going to deal all the way through verse 20 this morning. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. Would you stand, please? In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being the governor of Judea and Herod being Tetrarch of Galilee, and Philip the Tetrarch, his brother Philip, Tetrarch of the region of Aturia and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, Tetrarch of Abilene. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, as it is written. In the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Lord, we ask now that you would give us understanding in your word that you cause us to see and to hear what is being proclaimed here. Help us not to make it confusing in our minds or hearts. Help us not to push back and to deny what is being said, but to embrace and to hear and to come to the same conclusion. What must we do? And the answer is to repent. So lead us to repentance, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So an attempt to help you understand how this starts. In the fourth year of the presidency of Ronald Reagan, Jim Hunt being the governor of North Carolina, Jesse Helms at center, and Jim Broyhill, the representative for the 10th district, during the ministry of Billy Graham, the word of God came to Jeff, the son of Brantley in the Catawba Valley. Now all those other people are significant. I have a little bit of significance with you, but if I read that anywhere else and anybody else read that, they'd be like, Jeff who? In the first century, this would be like, John who? From where? All these other people were powerful, significant people. You got John. You see, John's not the focus. He's not the main focus of what's going on here. What, what is the main focus is the message and the ministry of John. The main idea today is that John the Baptist prepares the way of the Lord by proclaiming a baptism of repentance. You see, John was a transitional prophet between the old and the new. He was preparing God's people. He was preparing them for salvation. John the Baptist was preparing the way of the Lord. This list of all these powerful people here contains, first and foremost, the cruel tyrant Tiberius Caesar, three power-hungry sons of Herod the Great, 
and two scheming priests who had power and influence. It's very interesting. There's only one high priest at a time. But Annas and Caiaphas are both mentioned. It's because Annas, though he was not officially the high priest, had tremendous influence in the religious and political community of Jerusalem. It was during this time that the word of God came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. This language tying the old and new covenant together, we hear from Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 2. To whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the 13th year of his reign. So what does it mean that the word of the Lord came or the word of God came to John? It means this compelling call to proclaim the word of the Lord came upon John. And if, if, if you're reading your Bible closely, if you're paying attention, if you've been informed of the message of Scripture, you know this. Then when God is about to do something or when God is about to judge, when he's angry over the sins of people, a prophet will show up. The word of the Lord compelling them to proclaim. In verse 3, it says, He went out into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This is a stark part of the world, the River Jordan. There's life right by the river. The rest of it is desert. It's wilderness, not like we think with high trees. It's, it's, a, it's a sandy, rocky place. And just for the message of repentance, uh, it's fitting to remind yourself this is where Sodom was. This is the place where John goes out to preach. And what's important here is no explanation. The other gospel writers tell you some things about John personally, how he dressed, what he ate. Luke doesn't do that. Luke zones directly in on the message, the urgent message that he came to proclaim. In verse 4, it says that it is written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. If you're going down New Hope Road and you come to Hudson, or if you're in Gastonia, you'll notice it's Titman if you take a left. It's just the way it is here. Roads can change names. Now, here's why that's true. It wasn't too long ago that when you came to that intersection, you could turn left on Titman, but it was just woods to your right. Now, remember the significance when they cut that straight path right through the pine trees. Being able to see there's going to be a big, broad road here. The image here is that John came to plow the way, to make the way, the highway, if you will, for this coming Messiah who was coming after him. Every valley shall be filled, every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now again, here's what's interesting between Luke and Matthew and Mark. Matthew and Mark mention what's in verse 4 here. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. But they don't mention the other two verses from Isaiah 40, verses 3 through 5. 
So the, the question is, why does Luke include it? And what is it that Luke is focusing on? It's that the gospel is for all people. All flesh shall see the, the salvation of God. This is Luke's focus over and over again to remind us of what God is doing. And, and Luke wants us to see that as, as Christianity begins its movement in the world, that this gospel is not just for one segment of the population. It is for all peoples. And if you go to the very end of Acts, here's what he says, Acts 28, 28. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. So those who wish to see God's hand must be prepared to listen for him. And part of that readiness means that one's spiritual status before God and having a sense of humility drives you to seek after God's forgiveness. Now, how does that happen? John shows you that John prepares the way by proclaiming a baptism of repentance. We know from the Isaiah quote, we also know if we look back in chapter 1, verse 17, John's goal, his purpose is to be a, have a prepared people, a people who are in humble submission to God. So, so John uses plain, clear language about who people are and what is coming and what is necessary. John calls for the fruit of repentance. He said, verse 7, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? <laughs> yeah, bunch of snakes. Why'd y'all come here this morning? So you don't even know how to respond to me. That's what he said. Why do you use vipers? Well, he's hearkening back to the fact that these people are the seed of the serpent sin but he's also given a word picture here when a fire would ignite in the wilderness and begin to burn the brush that was on top of the ground much like what you see out in california the vipers the snakes the poisonous snakes would come out of their dens and crawl in front of the fire here's what john's saying you got the sense that judgment's coming and you're trying to get out ahead of the fire But here's what you need to do. You don't need to come here and get dipped in the water. That's not the, that's not the core issue of why I'm out here is that you get dipped. Here's the core issue of why I'm out here, that you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not some extraordinary feat in life. It's, it's living an ordinary life in a transformed way. Repentance is a way of life right where you are. It is a way of life that follows after the Lord and turns away from sin and the world. Do not begin to say to yourselves, he said, we, are, we have Abraham as our father. If I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. I'm amazed in spiritual conversations I have with people from this part of the country, really, primarily. They'll start talking about their, how their grandmother or their grandfather was godly and the influence they had on their life. Listen, your grandmother and grandfather, I'm glad they were godly and I'm glad they walked with Jesus and I'm glad they told you about Jesus. But unless you repent and trust in Christ, you will not see the place your grandmother or your grandfather saw. 
There are no spiritual children or grandchildren that came from people who were spiritual. Each one must come to know Christ on their own. And that's what he's saying. You you can't call Abraham your father. Hey, John, we don't need your baptism. We're Abraham's kids. We don't need to repent. And he says in verse 9, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. What he's warning is that judgment is coming and God is going to take up the axe and he's going to take it to the root of the tree. And every tree that has not borne good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now you may say, well, you know, know, that's John. Jesus didn't preach like that. Okay. Let me correct you. Matthew chapter 7, the words of Jesus. So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. As you can expect, when John preached like this, it drew a response. And here's what's fascinating. And how Luke explains this from a me- primarily a message perspective and the way Matthew and Mark explain it. That's not saying one's right and one's wrong. They're both important in our understanding. But Matthew and Mark focus on the Pharisees and the religious leaders coming out and arguing with John. They're not even mentioned here. So when he preaches like this, here's what it says. The crowds ask him, what shall we do? So what, what does this look like? What does the fruit of, re, of repentance actually look like in our lives? Verse 11, he answered them. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has food is to do likewise. One author wrote it this way. If you can't give your coat away, then it's not you who owns the coat. It's the coat that owns you. We are so caught up in the world that we live in with stuff and our inability to part with our stuff that we've lost sight of what it means to to live and act as followers of Jesus. The followers of Jesus are generous people. You got two coats, you only need one to wear. Give the other one away. You got more food than you need, give it away. Share with what you have. Generous life A generous life is the fruit of repentance. It shows what you've been given, that grace has been given to you to extend it to others. Then a group of people speak up. The tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. So thank God this is not the way it works around here. Uh, we, we, We know what our tax liability is. We figure our taxes out with the government and the state, and we send them in on April 15th. But what if some guy showed up at your house and he, he knows how, many, how much taxes you owe, but he can also get more than that, and that's how he earns his salary. Or let's say this way, this is really how it played out. There was one guy in town who contracted with the government to collect everybody's taxes, then he hired 10 or 15 people with him to go out. So he got a cut, and the 10 or 15 got a cut. And they were taking advantage of people getting all the taxes they could. Now here's what G, uh, John is saying. Only collect what Rome requires. Don't collect anymore. 
Now you see the fruit of this repentance in Luke chapter 19 when Zacchaeus comes to Jesus and he repents of his sin and he says, I'm going to give it all back fourfold from what I took from people. Then the soldiers step forward. They ask, what shall we do? What does the fruit of repentance look like for us? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. If you've ever been in the third world, you know this kind of stuff still plays out. We stopped at a gas station one time in the third world to get a cup of coffee. We pulled out, we literally pulled into the road and the police pulled us over. And the guy driving had, had his cup of coffee and because he was drinking while driving, it cost us 50 bucks. That's extortion. You can either go to jail or you can pay us now. And that's what was happening with these soldiers. They were the functioning police. And they were taking advantage of people. They'd say, if you don't give us money, we're going to accuse you of theft or we're going to accuse you of some other crime and we're going to throw you in jail. But if you'll pay us, we'll let it go. And John says, here's what you need to do. You need to be content with your wages. Now, here's what's crucial. This, this has happened so many times. For many, many of you, the work you have and the place where you work, there's some crooked stuff going on for a lot of you. How, how can there not be crooked stuff going on when we live in such a godless world? All right. But here's what John doesn't say. He doesn't say, y'all go quit your jobs and go into ministry. He doesn't tell the tax collectors and the soldiers to quit. He tells them to do it in an honest way. That's the dividing line. That's the dividing line of whether you hold a job or not, is can you do that job in an honest way? Can you carry that out? That's what repentance looks like. It's in our everyday lives. Now, John was such a powerful preacher. And this ministry of the baptism of repentance, it confused people. So John clarifies to these people that he is not the Christ. He's not the Messiah. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Savior. John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who, who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now there's three things he says that Jesus is superior. He's mightier than John. He brings a baptism that is better than John's and that he is the judge. Only Jesus has the power to save. John's baptism is a symbolic baptism of repentance. What we do is also a symbolic baptism. But at the moment of salvation, when Christ saves, when he opens your blind eyes, you are baptized with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Now, some people want to take fire and go over to Acts chapter 2 and tie it to Pentecost. That, that, that's not in context what I believe he means. That the Holy Spirit, when he comes on you with fire, what's one of the things that happens to your lost soul? Conviction. The awareness that you are a sinner and you are in need of Christ. It is the Holy Spirit who opens our eyes to see, who transforms us and takes our heart of stone and removes it and gives us a heart of flesh alive to the Lord. Only Jesus can do that. And John says in comparison 
He's mightier than I am. And the strap of his sandals, I'm not even worthy to tie up. Listen, in Hebrew law, a Hebrew slave, now other slaves at other places could do this, but a Hebrew slave was not allowed to untie someone's shoes. It was that unclean. And John says, here's how unworthy I am compared to Christ. I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. I'm even below the lowest of the low. Here's what else John recognizes. He recognizes he's going to stand before this righteous judge, the one who is going to dispense eternal judgment. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. All right, the image is the wheat and the husk on the outside of the wheat are all laying on a floor. Uh, it's an outdoor place, place where the wind is blowing. It's throw it up into the air. The wind would blow the chaff. The heavy kernel of the wheat would fall to the ground. The chaff was then collected and burned. Now, brothers and sisters, here's what he's saying. That Jesus is going to separate the wheat from the chaff. This is a quote. The visible church is now a mixed body, believers and unbelievers, holy and unholy, converted and unconverted, mingled together in every congregation and often sit side by side. It is beyond the power of men to separate them. False profession is, also, is often so much like a true profession and grace is often so weak and feeble that in many cases the right discernment of character is impossible to see. The wheat and the chaff will continue together until. They will continue together until the day when the Lord comes. When he takes up the winnowing fork and he clears the threshing floor, the wheat from the chaff and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. You say, I, I, I don't know if I like that kind of preaching. Maybe you're a guest here today say, I'm not ever coming back here. I want to ask you a question. I want to ask everybody a question when it comes to saying something like this. What if several years ago, I don't remember what year it was, I should have looked. What, 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 what if you had had an early warning to the people standing on the beach? What if you had 30 minutes or an hour to stand up on top of that hotel where those families were down there playing in the pool with their kids and said, a tsunami is coming. Run! It was too late. It was on them before they knew it. And lives crushed in a moment. I am here to tell you today a tsunami is coming. And it is an unstoppable force and his name is Jesus Christ. He came as a baby the first time. This time he will come riding a white horse. And he will wield his sword and he will execute judgment. And all who have trusted in him and repented of their sin are the wheat who will be re returned to him forevermore. The rest are chaff. I say to you with John, repent. Now here's the irony. We live in a world that would rather punish somebody for saying something like I just said. We'd rather not be warned. We'd rather the tsunami just overtake us. Well, wasn't he different in John's time because John suffers the consequences of proclaiming the good news. Now hear what verse 18 says. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. 
This is good news. This is not bad news. Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved for him by Herodias, his brother's wife. So Herod the Tetrarch was committing incest. And not only that, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. So preaching, proclaiming the gospel, the good news of the word of God brings consequences. And I want to remind you that first and foremost, the greatest consequences change lives. Consider all the people's lives who were changed as a result of hearing John preach. But proclaiming the gospel also brings painful consequences. I didn't write this. Luke is telling us that John the Baptist was never invited to Herod's prayer breakfast. Before, I, before preaching, people come up to me and told me somebody's famous is here. Okay. Dwight O. Moody was preaching and somebody came to him and said, uh, Mr. Moody, before you preach, we just want you to know that President Lincoln is in the audience. He said, okay. He got up mid-sermon, you know what he said? I understand that President Lincoln is here, and if President Lincoln does not repent of his sin and trust in Christ, he too will go to hell. We live in a world where we're tiptoeing around powerful people. John didn't. He either preached directly to him, or at least his sin was so well known that he pointed it out to others, and it provoked Herod, and Herod arrested him. If you go through the rest of the Gospels, you find Luke 9, 9 tells you that John was beheaded by Herod. Now here's a question. This is out of chronological order. It doesn't happen right here. Because we're going to look at the very next verse and John baptizes Jesus. This is not where it happens. So why does Luke put it right here? Why does Luke tell you right here? I think two reasons. One, there's consequences for proclaiming the gospel. And number two, John's not the point anymore. When we take up the next verse, the point of the gospel is Jesus. And John's saying, I'm not him. And here he is, the beloved son of God. Before we get there, I want to ask this question this morning. Is there evidence of the fruit of repentance and the proclamation of good news in my life? Repentance is a central theme in Luke and in Acts, which Luke wrote both. It's your attitude that results from your new relationship to God through Christ. It's the new orientation that you have toward him and toward your fellow human beings. You love God and you love your neighbor. Half of the New Testament uses of the word repentance are in Luke and Acts. This will not be the last time that we focus and think about repentance. But somehow, we, we've, we've wandered away from the true message of the gospel and we have convinced ourselves that souls can be saved without repentance. We've come to present something that's kind of like repentance is feeling sorry that you weren't religious sooner. Hardly any mention of sin and righteousness and a holiness of God. Repentance 
is turning your whole life away from sin in the world to the will and the way of God. Acts chapter 2. This is the first recorded sermon in the Bible after Jesus ascends to the Father. And pick up mid-sermon, Peter proclaiming, this Jesus, I'm in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Let all the house of Israel now know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You bear the weight of responsibility, quite literally. These people called for his crucifixion, many of them in this crowd. But we are all guilty of the necessity of the crucifixion of Christ because it was for our sin that the sinless one hung in our place. And because he is who he claimed to be, he rose from the dead and the power of the resurrection is applied to all who believe. So when Peter proclaimed this, it says when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and Peter they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, to see if it sounds familiar, brothers, what shall we do? Bow your heads and pray this prayer with me. No. With boldness and conviction, Peter says to them and says to us, repent. Repent. Jesus is not some religious experience that you add to your life. Jesus changes your life completely. That you admit and confess that you are a sinner in need of a Savior and you repent, you turn from that sin and you trust in Christ. And as a sign of your faith in Christ, you are baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, he said. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls, our God calls to himself. This is the work of God. And it says, though those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. You say, why, why, are you, why are you reading that and talking about repentance? Because the next verse tells you what the fruit looked like. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers, and all came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They shared their coats with each other. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing proceeds to all as they had need. They gave their food away. And day by day, attending in the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received with their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Don't miss that last verse. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Why? Why were people being saved? Because two things were starkly happening with this group of 3,000 that the Lord keeps adding to. Stark things. First, their lives changed. The fruit of repentance was there, and people saw it. They grew in favor with people. Second, they were proclaiming. They were making this message known. You say, I don't see that clearly. It's implied, but it's there. How will they know unless they hear? They have to hear. 
They were proclaiming this good news. So brothers and sisters, I've said this, I'm gonna keep saying this to remind you. You are living in the most desperate period of your life. We're living it together. There's no time that compares to this in our lifetimes. And here's what I'm calling on you as men and women who claim to know Jesus Christ, repent. I'm calling on you to turn your focus away from a pandemic and politics and turn your focus to the things of God. Calling you away from the city out into the wilderness to hear a prophet. Repent. You will not be saved by a vaccine. You will be, not be saved by a politician in Washington. There's only one who saves, and his name is Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the only one that is going to save your desperate neighbor who's tired of sitting in their house. The only one that's going to save a desperate 18-year-old who is so incredibly lonely is Jesus Christ and him alone. Brothers and sisters, we need to wake up to the day that we're in. And we need to repent of our attitudes, our way of talking to each other, and we need to focus on where we need to focus. This week I received a testimony of a young man who was converted. Several weeks ago I caught eyes with him while I was preaching. It's just one of those moments that you could tell the Spirit of God was dealing with this young man. His testimony with one of our pastors is how God had began to deal with him in preaching. And secondly, it was the family he was around. He'd never been around a converted family before. Seeing, watching, hearing. And all those things came together and pressed on him. And the Spirit of God led him to repentance and he trusted Christ. That's how it happens. That's how it happens. Brothers and sisters, you're living in a desperate world. You're not the only desperate person. In fact, why are you acting like you're in such desperation if you know Jesus? I'm going to take you back to what I've said to you over and over again. God is my rock and my salvation. I know that through Christ. I don't do that because I made it up. God is my rock and my salvation. I will not fear. Psalm 27, I will not fear. And I'm not just talking about the pandemic. I don't fear Herod either. Brothers and sisters, we are called to be like John and recognize we're not worthy to untie his sandals. We're not worthy of his salvation, but he has transformed us and he has put a new song in our mouth. And many will see and hear and put their fear in the Lord. So let's make this gospel known. Let's pray. Lord, I plead for the man or woman or young person who's present, whom you've been pressing in on their heart through the power of the Holy Spirit, revealing their sin and their need for repentance. 
I pray that they will not be able to walk away from this place today without crying out to you, confessing who they are in their sin and saying to you, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you died on the cross for me. I believe that you rose again. I believe that you are the only way to salvation. May there be many who do that now. Lord, for the rest of us who know you, your followers, Lord, I've spoken and preached to myself today. I trust there are many other things that you're calling men and women in this room to repentance. But I pray that we would repent and turn our lives to you and give it for your sake. I plead this in the name of Jesus. Amen.